0: hey everyone welcome back to chronic failure podcast this is your host brian bostock hopefully you got a chance to listen to my first two episodes the first being ddt and the second being the oil crisis of the Niger delta both have a lot of information and i think are very important topics Today's episode will be a little bit shorter and a little bit different. It is going to be about a lawsuit that was brought on against the industrial giant 3M by the state of Minnesota. We are going to take a look at the history of the 3M Corporation, some of the history of the chemical in which the lawsuit was brought on because of, which is polyfluoroalkyls, also known as PFOS or PFAs. We will then take a look at some of the health effects as well as the lawsuit itself, and the ending of this episode will pertain to the most recent changes in regulation concerning polyfluoroalkyls, as well as the changes within 3M concerning the production and use of polyfluoroalkyls in their products. As always, I hope you enjoy and thank you for listening. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air. pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking... A of wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat of toxic waste water being dumped into the sea from its oil processing plant to the release of dangerous microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. Between 1956 and the early 2000s, unregulated chemicals called per- and floral alkyls, or PFOS, were leached into the groundwater around the Twin Cities' east metro region of Minnesota. It was later found that these chemicals were toxic. Hard to reconcile was the fact that these substances were found in everyday products being manufactured by a large company called 3M. and It's a company with a storied trajectory of innovation ranging from rock mining to rocket science. For context, one of 3M's products... Include the household staple Scotch tape, as well as Teflon nonstick cookware that you can find in almost any nonstick pan. Before we delve a little deeper into just how these seemingly innocuous elements of our everyday lives could be potentially harming us, let's first rewind and take a look at the inception of PFAS. Now, for this, we're going to head back to World War II. In the early 1940s, innovation was primarily driven by war, and we saw this in our past episode on DDT. At the time, scientist Joseph H. Simmons was working for a top-secret project with the goal of creating the first atomic bomb. Now, this was, of course, the Manhattan Project. But before any bombs could be made, uranium had to be split. In order to facilitate this splitting, a new substance had to be created, and so Simmons experimented with fluorine, which is a gaseous element. Fluorine is sometimes referred to as the wildest hellcat, as it's the most electronegative and reactive of all the elements. Now fueled by a unique urgency of patriotism and the promise of potential scientific breakthroughs, Simmons bonded this wildest Hellcat to a carbon arc. The results of this bond were spectacular. The fluoride-carbon bonds created were almost impossible to break, and these bonds were the first PFAS. The history of 3M in many ways echoes the lofty capitalistic ideals of the American dream. Originally called the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, 3M was founded in the year 1902 in Two Harbors, Minnesota, by five men Herman Cable, John Duane, Henry Bryan, William McGanagly, and Danley Budd. The company had humble beginnings as a sandpaper manufacturer. But in the year 1907, under future president and chairman of the board, William L. McKnight, 3M's ethos crystallized into a veritable culture of innovation. For 42 years, the Minnesota and mining manufacturing expanded, and this entailed moving to St. Paul, which is a more central location, and that was in 1916. And they also diversified their product line, going from sandpaper to specialized cleaning cloths, to the invention of masking tape. Although those three examples did well for the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, it was in 1916 the most significant event happened, and that was when they opened their first laboratory for testing. And this just shows the genesis of the company's constant culture of innovation. Now, in 3M's own account of their historical timeline, The company says it diverted its domestic production in 1940, in order to help with the war effort. An investigative piece for Bloomberg Magazine, published in November of 2018, journalists Tiffany Carey and Christopher Cannon go even further, stating that shortly after fluorine-carbon bonds were discovered, 3M actually bought the patent outright for Simmons' discovery for their own fluorochemical project. It's interesting, 3M does openly state in their book on the company's history that they even poached scientists directly from the Manhattan Project in order to work with them. Carrie and Cannon go on to sum up the sentiment that foreshadows the future of the company, stating that, The Manhattan Project's culture of secrecy merged into 3M's culture of innovation. The linchpin in the future lawsuit against 3M would be whether or not the company knew of any wrongdoings when it disposed of PFOS-loaded wastewater. Now let's actually examine what PFOS are and how they can be potentially problematic. As I mentioned earlier, PFOS are chemicals found in everyday products. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, as of March 2021, there are over 9,000 types of documented PFOS that have been unleashed into our environment. The key issue with PFOS is the same one that made them so desirable in the first place, their unbreakable bond. Again, we're seeing a very similar circumstance as we did in the first episode when I talked about DDT. So the same reason why people loved the DDT was its persistence. You didn't have to reapply all the time, but that ultimately ended up being its downfall because it was toxic and it stuck around for a long time. In 1952, a substance called PFOS, which is a type of PFO, spilled onto the chemist Patsy Sherman's tennis shoe in the 3M lab. It left a coating that was found to repel water in grease, which would be hydrophobic. The resulting product was Scotchgard, and Scotchgard's impermeable nature is exactly what makes the substances like PFOS hazardous when they find themselves in the environment. So simply put, members of this chemical family do not break down or dilute easily. As such, they are characterized by rapid bioaccumulation in their environment. Again, very similar to DDT. But I do have to note, they're not in the same family of chemicals at all. So I'm sure by now you're wondering, you know, how, how are these PFOS finding themselves in the environment? Well, in the case of the state of Minnesota, the answer to this question takes us back to the city of Cottage Grove. Cottage Grove is in Washington County, and it's home to a 3M plant. Now, this plant, significantly located at the end of the street called (laughs) Innovation Road, disposed of its wastewater in four dumping sites between the periods of 1956 to the early 2000s. Now, these sites were disposal sites in Oakdale and Woodbury, a Washington County landfill near Lake Elmo, and dump sites surrounding the Cottage Grove plant. 3M also dumped its waste directly into the Mississippi River. So there's really no saying exactly how far the PFAS ended up uh, going down once they were in the Mississippi River. In an informational video by the Washington County Public Health and Environment, groundwater pollution travels in cloud like formations, often in unpredictable directions and speeds. Since many groundwater contaminants don't have a taste or odor, you can't be sure whether or not your well is safe without testing. Now, these cloud like formations are also called plumes. In Washington County, of drinking water comes from the groundwater. In the Twin Cities, East Metro area, most of the drinking water comes from aquifers located underground. These aquifers are tapped by either the city or private wells. When it comes to public water, it is the responsibility of the Minnesota Department of Health to regularly test that water private well owners are responsible for testing the wells themselves. Now let's hop back to the off-site dumping uh, into landfills and waterways, which began in the 1950s. But MDH only started intentionally testing for PFAS in drinking water in 2002. So there is a very long period of time that potentially millions of people were exposed to PFAS because no one had any idea that they were in the water and this is because 3M withheld information regarding the potential toxicity of PFAS as well as the methods they were using at their dump. An example of this can be found in an internal memo unearthed by Attorney General Lori Swanson who led the prosecution in the case against 3M on behalf of the state of Minnesota. In this memo which is dated 1961 Company officials discuss how to protect 3M, quote, from legal action resulting from the pollution of the groundwater. In reference to the wastewater, it was dumping into the Woodbury site, which was one of the four dumping sites. 3M also subsequently failed to disclose to the MDH that there were unlined trenches at the Woodbury site, meaning that wastewater could leach into the ground unimpeded. All of this points to prior knowledge of the issues with PFOS, as well as willful misdirection. Eventually, Minnesota decided to take on 3M in 2018, and the prosecution was led by Attorney General Lori Swanson. The case relied heavily on an extensive 156-page report compiled by the battle group detailing the damage to Minnesota's natural resources resulting from 3M's disposal of PFCs, which are polyfluoral chemicals, and this was in Washington County. This report states that the company produced thousands of gallons of wet waste stemming from the manufacturing of highly successful products like Scotchgard. As we touched on earlier in this episode, some of the waste flowed directly into the Mississippi River or was dumped around the facility at Cottage Grove. The report also states that from 1956 to 1974, waste was buried at sites in Oakdale, Lake Elmo, and Woodbury. After further investigation, these sites were found to be near water wells. The report then goes on stating that chemicals flowed into four underground aquifers and resulted in a 100 mile underground plume. Now this plume also polluted the Mississippi River, local lakes, and fish populations. Overall, the state claims that drinking water of over 14 communities, effectively over 170,000 people roughly, over a 150 square mile piece of land was affected by improper disposal of this chemical waste. The state was coming out and demanding reparations, which would be used to clean up and subsequently monitor and treat drinking water in these areas. At the core of Minnesota's lawsuit against 3M was the allegation that the company engaged in deceitful practices by knowingly using these products that were toxic to human health. The Bloomberg article by Tiffany Carey and Christopher Cannon states that establishing that a chemical actually causes harm is a monumental task. It often takes decades of study in Petri dishes and on animals, and then there can be doubts about how well such studies translate to humans. Spotty census data and death records can also leave doubt. Fortunately, most of the comprehensive data available at this time was compiled into the Battle Group's report commissioned by the state. The report led by David Sunding, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley's College of Natural Resources, stated that PFAS showed the clearest evidence of impact on human health in Oakdale. Sunding backed up this claim by stating that after water filters were installed in 2006, instances of low birth weight, premature babies, and infertility plummeted in the region. This, he inferred, established a direct correlation between the presence of the PFAS chemicals in the water and local health problems. Another shocking discovery was that statistically a child who died in Oakdale between 2003 and 2015 was 171 times more likely to have succumbed to a type of cancer compared to those in the larger tri-county area. When it comes to the adverse health effects of PFAS, attributing the blame is complex. As I mentioned earlier, the health impacts of PFAS remain hotly contested. And to add to the problem, PFOS are pervasive in our environment, meaning that it's hard to tie them back to a single source. According to Trust, PFOS have been found in the environment all around the world, even in the most remote areas such as the Arctic. They have also been detected in the blood and breast milk of people and wildlife globally. Additionally, regulations regarding the use of PFOS have only come into play as recently as September 25th, 2020, and this is when the EPA implemented its significant new use rule on perfluoral alkyl chemical substances. The new rules required anyone manufacturing, processing, or importing the chemicals for a new use to notify the EPA at least 90 days in advance, and additionally manufacturing may not begin until the EPA has reviewed that notice. As I alluded to earlier, it appears that it is the fact that 3M shielded their own data that incriminates them. The Minnesota lawsuit ended up uncovering some truly disturbing facts. In 1975, a Florida professor and two of his colleagues contacted 3M to report that human blood samples from Texas and New York contained high doses of questionable chemical substances. So questions were relayed to 3M about whether or not Scotchgard and Teflon were the sources of these chemicals. According to a 2018 examination of public studies by Philip Grangine, a professor at the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard University, a 1978 study by Goldenthal, Jessup, Giel, and Maring found that injecting monkeys with any dose of the chemical PFOS resulted in death. In 1979, it's reported that a 3M lawyer actually suggested not disclosing that PFOS, the Scotchgard ingredient, is the chemical that outside scientists had found in human blood in 1975. In a movement that is both symbolic and a testament to 3M having long-standing knowledge of the harmful nature of PFOS, in 1981, females of childbearing potential were moved to new roles in 3M's decature plants so they would not be exposed to the type of fluorochemical that can cause birth defects in rats. Again, it is the lack of transparency surrounding 3M's actions that begets suspicion. Perhaps the most telling clue of 3M's willful negligence comes from one of its own employees. In a 2022 article for the Minnesota Reformer, journalist Dina Winter exposes the story of 3M toxicologist Richard Purdy. In 1998, Purdy did a study in order to find out if any of the company's chemicals showed up in the blood of eagles and albatrosses. As the bird's diet consists mostly of fish, Purdy was surprised to find that the levels of chemicals in the eagle's blood was comparable to human levels. And this was a testament to the bioaccumulative nature of the chemicals. Even more disturbing was the fact that eagles also showed signs of contamination. Since eaglets were primarily fed fish by the parents who were hunting from remote lakes, the data signified widespread contamination. Again, this is exactly like DDT was. And they're looking at one major species that was affected by both chemicals. Purdy ultimately did inform 3M of his findings and their response was to disband the team collecting the data. In 1999, Richard Purdy resigned from his position as a toxicologist with 3M and sent his resignation letter to the EPA informing them that while 3M did disclose that some chemicals were found in animals, it failed to disclose that, they're, that they were also present in eaglets, effectively downplaying the magnitude of the contamination. As Dina Winter sums up in this same article, the EPA began investigating the chemicals that year. But by then, 3M had reaped billions of dollars in profits from the chemicals that the company had been warned were harming the environment and risking human health. Purdy's warnings were clear, as revealed by former Attorney General Lori Swanson, who sued 3M in that case, alleging the company failed for decades to report that its chemicals could be toxic to humans, animals, and the environment, keeping information from regulators and scientists to protect its lucrative revenue stream. In other words, 3M knew that there was a possibility that the chemicals it was using in the manufacturing of these commonly used goods could be harmful and it intentionally kept this information from industry regulators as well as the public. The resulting effects are actually felt on the ground in the cities like Cottage Grove and Oakdale, where whispers about the chemicals killing the inhabitants have become some sort of local lore. The Bloomberg article relays the feelings of betrayal coming from the communities, one community member being Jan Churchill, an Oakdale math teacher who keeps a grim tally. Five students have died over a 10-year time frame, many parents and teachers are also sick and her own husband was just diagnosed with a rare blood cancer after years of mysterious immune problems. Now she suspects 3M is to blame and she says every time I drink out of the water fountain I want to throw up. Philip Grangine for his For his part, Best explains the flawed thinking that allows companies like 3M to operate unchecked for decades, stating industrial chemicals are often regarded inert or safe unless proven otherwise, i.e. the so-called untested chemicals assumption, although this belief is, of course, not logical in any way. A high-priority group of environmental chemicals, the perfluorinated alkylate substances, constitute a clear example of how narrow reliance on published toxicity studies can be misleading and result in insufficient and delayed protection of public health. He continues on by saying, identification and characterization of environmental hazards that impact human health must rely on the best possible science to inform and inspire appropriate public health intervention. The PFOS are persistent emerging pollutants that are now being recognized as human health hazards. Although the PFOS have been produced for over 60 years, academic research on environmental health aspects has appeared only in the most 10 years or so. In the meantime, these persistent chemicals accumulated in the global environment. Some early studies, for example, on population exposures and toxicity were not released to the public until after the year 2000. Still, the first PFOs risk assessments ignored these reports and relied on scant journal publication. The first guidelines and legal limits for PFOs, such as in drinking water, were only proposed 10 years ago. Now, PFOS levels have decreased substantially since then, but remain higher than suggested by data on human adverse effects, especially on the immune system that occur at background exposure levels. By now, the best-known PFOS are being phased out, and related PFOS are being introduced as substitutes. Given the substantial delays in discovery of PFOS toxicity, In dissemination of findings and in regulatory decisions, PFAS substitutes and other persistent industrial chemicals should be subject to prior scrutiny before widespread usage. In other words, 3M relied on data available at the time that fit their economic prerogative in order to pursue the manufacturing of products that were made using questionable chemicals. They simply molded the available data to fit their needs. The inference here is that unlike the practices currently in place, chemicals should always be assumed unsafe and tested extensively before use, not the other way around. Now let's get back to that settlement I talked about earlier. The Minnesota Department of Health initially found contaminated groundwater in 2002. Now it followed up this study with numerous other studies. And by 2017 it had lowered its standard for acceptable amounts of PFOS in drinking water enough that the city of Cottage Grove did not meet the required thresholds. Cottage Grove's then mayor, Myron Bailey, went to 3M to request help installing filtration systems on the town's wells. Now, of course, as you could probably guess, 3M refused and countered that the chemicals came from the runoff caused by using firefighter foam to quail a plastic fire that occurred 15 years prior. Now, Bailey has stated in the Bloomberg article as regarding that rebuttal as blatantly false, countering that the wells were upstream of the site of that fire. And furthermore, the city's fire chief chimed in saying that The foam they claimed was used was never even carried by the Cottage Grove Fire Department. In a feat of poetic justice, the tables turned on 3M on February 20th, 2018, and it was on this day, the eve of the scheduled start date of the trial named Minnesota vs. 3M Company, Minnesota settled the lawsuit against 3M in exchange for $850 million without 3M actually admitting any wrongdoing. Now, of course, it's not cheap to bring someone or some entity to trial, and after expenses, this meant that $720 million would be invested in the state for treatment and monitoring of its drinking water, as well as natural resource restoration projects. While it does sound like a lot of money, this is the third highest payout by a company for natural resources damage claim after the Deepwater Horizon and the Exxon Valdez oil spills. The win was monumental, but 3M's refusal to admit any corporate responsibility or their lack of shouldering any of the blame caused a climate of deception among the residents of Washington County. The Cottage Grove mayor at the time, Myron Bailey, echoes this sentiment, quote, To this day, they have said they don't believe anything is wrong. He said, If you are a business or individual who has done something wrong, I believe you can be accountable and say you did it. Perhaps it's this feeling of injustice that pushed Attorney General Lori Swanson to publicly post the numerous internal memos incriminating 3M, even after the settlement was reached. After all, the $850 million settlement money that 3M had to fork over only accounted for about 2.6% of the company's $33 billion revenue in 2018. It was a veritable drop in the bucket and begs the question... What is the price of innovation? To this day, 3M has never publicly admitted any wrongdoing and states that there is no proof that PFOS or any of its perfluoral chemicals cause any harm. In 2000, after boasting sales of $300 million, Scotchgard was set to be phased out, citing environmental concerns by 3M. Just two years later, 3M released a greener version of Scotchgard, which was supposed to be a clean alternative to the celebrated original version. It should be known that this version of Scotchgard still contains PFAs. 2002 was a huge year in terms of regulation for PFOS and PFOS. The EPA... Drafted new standards for absorbable organic fluorine methods in water samples as a broad screening for the presence of chemical substances that contain these carbon fluoride bonds. PFAS will also be addressed in National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System Permitting. And this proactively uses the Clean Water Act permitting authorities to reduce discharges of PFOS at the source and to obtain more comprehensive monitoring information on potential sources of PFOS. EPA also in 2022 drafted an aquatic life criteria for PFOS and PFOS. And this is the first Clean Water Act aquatic life criteria for PFOS, and it's focusing on two of the most well-studied chemicals in the group, which are those PFOS and PFOS. These draft recommendations reflect the latest peer-reviewed scientific knowledge regarding the toxicological effects of the POAs and PFAs on freshwater aquatic organisms. In May of 2022, the EPA took an important step forward to protect people from PFAS by adding five new PFAS to the list of risk-based values for site cleanups. And these values known as regional screening levels and regional remedial management levels help the EPA determine if response or remediation activities are needed. On June 6th, the EPA issued its first test order under the EPA's National PFOS Testing Strategy, which is a key component of the agency's PFOS Strategic Roadmap. Test orders are the first step under the National PFOS Testing Strategy to protect human health and the environment from potential risks of PFOS. Also in June of 22, the EPA released four drinking water health advisories for PFOS. The EPA also announced that it is inviting states and territories to apply for $1 billion in bipartisan infrastructure law grant funding to address PFOS and other emergency contaminants in drinking water, specifically in small and disadvantaged communities. On August 26th of 22, the EPA issued a proposal to designate two of the most widely used PFAs as hazardous substances under the CERCLA or Superfund. This rulemaking would increase transparency around releases of these harmful chemicals and help to hold polluters accountable for cleaning up their contamination. In the end of 2022, December 5th, the EPA proposed a rule that would improve reporting PFOS to the Toxic Release Inventory or TRI by, among other proposed changes, eliminating an exemption that allows facilities to avoid reporting information on PFOS when those chemicals are used in small or de minimis concentrations. Because PFOS are used at low concentrations in many products, this rule would ensure that covered industry sectors and federal facilities that make or use TRI listed PFOS will no longer be able to rely on this exemption to avoid disclosing their PFOS releases and other waste management quantities for these chemicals. Also in December, the EPA issued a companion memo to that memo I talked about that was released in April of 22. This expanded version enhances the initial memo to include additional permitting mechanisms and complementary recommendations, which together will further Accelerate efforts to reduce PFOS discharges to waterways. The memo goes on to recommend that states and municipalities use the most current sampling and analysis methods in their NPDES programs to identify known or suspected sources of PFOS and to take actions using their pretreatment and permitting authorities, such as technology based limits on sources of PFOS discharge. Now, the most recent ruling happened just last month in January of 2023. The EPA proposed a rule that would prevent anyone from starting or resuming without a complete EPA review and risk determination the manufacture, processing, or use of an estimated 300 PFAS that have been made or used for many years, known as inactive PFAS. In the past, these chemicals may have been used in many industries in a variety of ways, including as a binding agent, surfactant, sealant, gaskets, and may also have been released into the environment. Without this proposed rule, companies could resume uses of these PFAS without the notification and review by the EPA. Now, due to the mounting regulatory and financial pressures, The 3M Corporation says it will end the manufacture of per and polyfloral substances and discontinue their use in its products by the end of 2025. But other floral chemical competitors say they're going to stick with the business of production in these chemicals, but only continue to strategically phase out the most problematic. PFOS materials. 3M currently generates about $1.3 billion in sales and earns about $200 million annually from the sale of PFOS products. However, the business represents a relatively small part of its overall sales, which were $35.4 billion in 2021. With the exit, the company expects to accrue financial charges up to three billion dollars and this is what the 3m ceo mike roman says in a press release quote while pfos can be safely made and used we also see an opportunity to lead in a rapidly evolving external regulatory and business landscape so there you have it this whole case was based on information showing that pfos In the waste that was created by 3M was causing health issues in not only humans, but also the environment. 3M ended up denying all that, although they did settle. So maybe they didn't quite admit that they were wrong, but I think these actions and the actions they took after the lawsuit and just settling the lawsuit kind of speaks louder. You know, the old saying, actions speak louder than words. Hopefully you've learned a little bit more today that you didn't already know about the 3M Corporation, PFAs, and the lawsuit that seemingly went under the radar against 3M. It is good, however, recent regulations have sort of forced the hand of those companies producing these PFAs, primarily 3M as I mentioned, other competitors are going to continue the production and use of PFAs. But I think this is definitely a step in the right direction. As these PFAs are phased out, we will just have to wait and see what other chemical comes along that takes its place. So I guess this episode didn't end up being too much shorter than my past couple, but that is a-okay with me. Hopefully you gathered some pretty good information from this episode, and it will inspire you to do some further research in the topic. I would like to give thanks to my researcher, Chloe Kibby, and I would like to give thanks to my listeners. I thank you for listening. I hope you continue to listen. Make sure you go check out the podcast's Instagram page. It is The Chronic Failure Podcast over there on Instagram. And feel free to send any questions, comments, concerns, really anything you want to send me over to the podcast email, which is the Podcast at gmail.com. Next week's episode, I will be talking about Agent Orange and the Rainbow Herbicides. And no, this isn't the name of a traveling rock band from the 70s. This is, of course, a heavy-duty family of chemicals used by the United States military during the Vietnam War. That's all for this week's episode. Again, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And please, if you think about it, go give the podcast some likes, some reviews, wherever you see it, mention it to your friends, family, get the word out. We're going to do some pretty great things.